In the late 19th century, a big debate raged, and I do mean raged, about the nature of symphonic music. What it boiled down to basically was this. When it came to conveying emotion or meaning, should a symphony speak for itself? Should it be absolute music, as in the symphonies of Brahms, for instance? Or did it need a title or some sort of literary programme to help it get its message across? Should the music in some way illustrate an idea or a story, as in the symphonic poems of Liszt or the tone poems of Richard Strauss? We tend to think of Gustav Mahler as a composer who very much knew his own mind. His first big work, Das Klagende Lied, the Song of Lamentation, which he completed at the age of 20, already has so many features of the style and orchestral sound world that we know as Mahlerian. Yet when it came to writing symphonies, Mahler seems to have been initially unsure about what kind of symphony he was supposed to be writing. The work we now know as Symphony No. 1 was originally called Symphonic Poem. Then it became Symphony, but with a title, Titan. This gave an explicit connection to a once-famous novel by the writer Jean-Paul, really Johann Paul Richter. At the same time, Mahler more than hinted to friends that the symphony contained an autobiographical element, that somewhere in the music was the depiction of a doomed love affair, one which fell apart just before Mahler began the symphony. But this issue continued to be a problem for Mahler. How much should a composer tell his audience in advance, and how much should he leave them to work out to experience for themselves? The trouble is, people would keep getting hold of the wrong end of the stick, like the lovely old Russian lady who approached Mahler after a performance of his Symphony No. 2, the Resurrection Symphony, and asked him plainfully to tell her, in concrete terms, what she should expect when she entered the next world. He should know, after all, he'd written about it so beautifully in his symphony. Mahler's Fifth Symphony, which he composed in 1901-2, was a big turning point in this respect for Mahler. This is the first symphony that he presented to the world without either a programme or a sung text. It's purely orchestral music from start to finish, however close the orchestral writing might come sometimes to song without words. the famous Adagietto, the fourth of the five movements of Mahler's Fifth Symphony. It seems pretty clear now that that was composed as a kind of wordless love song to the woman he'd just met and was about to marry, Alma Schindler. At the end of the Adagietto, Mahler virtually quotes the ending of a song he wrote at around the same time. It's a setting of the poem by the romantic writer Friedrich Rückert, Ich bin der Welt abandoned gekommen, I am lost to the world. 
I live solely in my heaven, in my love, in my song. As the singer delivers those final words, we have a falling figure on the strings, like a great sigh. That turns up slightly transformed again as the climax of the adagietto. It's a tone higher this time. You might say it's raised emotionally too. So there's a kind of musical reference that Alma would have recognised, or at least Marla would have hoped that she would recognise. And that's not just a one-off. There are other references to songs, to Marla's own songs or to well-known popular songs of his own day. They're scattered throughout the Fifth Symphony. Or is it rather carefully planted? Are these clues that Marla has left for those with ears to hear as to a possible larger meaning in the Fifth Symphony? Well, let's start with the first movement. There's one big verbal clue right at the head of the score. This movement is titled Trauermarsch, Funeral March. Not that it actually needs that explanation. It begins as a very powerful funeral march, introduced by a grim trumpet fanfare. grand, stately march, yet also with a touch of grotesquerie about it, death in full pomp. Well, Mahler himself had come very near to death early in 1901, when he'd had a near-fatal hemorrhage. But the tone in this first movement soon changes to something more pathetic.
Here there's a striking similarity to another song, also composed in 1901, Der Tambourgsel, The Drummer Boy. We have similar percussion sounds and funereal rhythms in the song to those in the symphony, and also similar lamenting figures on the strings, keening, even sobbing shapes. song tells of a pathetic drummer boy sentenced to death for desertion. In the symphony, this invocation of the song makes a striking contrast with the grandeur of the opening. You could say that we have two very different perspectives on death, one grand and stately, the other pathetic, pitiful. Death and love. Well, it's not very much of a surprise to find a composer like Mahler dwelling on images like that. They're the stuff of life, especially, you might say, for German romantics, with whom Mahler, up to a point, was keen to ally himself. So, perhaps there's even the outlines of a story here, the fear of death in the first movement, transformed by the ardent expression of love in the second. Maybe it's the old biblical expression taken from the Song of Solomon, love is strong as death. There's a reference that Mahler as a Jew and a Roman Catholic convert would know well enough. Yet other references to songs in the Fifth Symphony suggest a different kind of narrative. The finale, following without a break after the great sigh that ends the adagietto, begins with surprisingly perky sounds on solo wind. Here's another reference to a song, a recent one rather than a contemporary one this time, Lob des Hohen Verstands, in praise of lofty intellect. It depicts a singing contest between birds, judged by a donkey. In the singing contest in the song, the donkey is not really very impressed by the nightingale. He finds his song too complex. Instead, he chooses the cuckoo. Well, now there's a song he can understand. He pronounces it good choral. It's good choral style. He thinks that has the right academic ring to it. 
Perhaps there's a personal element too. Marla had been stung by remarks by some of his critics, especially by those who claimed that he couldn't do proper counterpoint, which is a very serious charge indeed to raise against a composer who aspires to a place in the great Austro-German symphonic pantheon. While he was working on the Fifth Symphony, Mahler studied J.S. Bach, the great German master of counterpoint and of the art of fugue. And the reference to that song that we've just heard in the symphony is followed by a superbly fluent, muscular display of Mahler's own newly honed contrapuntal skills. <laughs> So after a tender, intimate love song in the Adagietto, Mahler decides to take on his critics. This is a little bit like what happens in his friend Richard Strauss's tone poem Ein Heldenleben, which was written in 1898, three years before Mahler began work on his Fifth Symphony. In Ein Heldenleben, a hero's life, the hero is also stung by critics and then consoled by his wife and with that consolation duly taking effect, he then rises to take on his critics in a mighty contrapuntal battle. Perhaps Mahler was thinking of Strauss's example when he similarly decides to take on his critics in the finale of the Fifth Symphony. But there are other aspects of storytelling in Mahler's Fifth Symphony, especially in the second movement. Here the argument is more purely musical, yet it's also clearly influenced by the tone poems of Liszt and the programme symphonies of Berlioz. After the grim funeral march of the first movement, the second movement sets out with desperate intensity, and crucial here is a straining figure on high woodwind, a big leap up, followed by a tiny fall. little figure that the woodwind pick out. That goes through a variety of transformations, urgent striving, lamenting, memories of the funeral march. But the beauty of it is that it's easy to feel the process, even if you can't follow it analytically. Eventually, that dissonant, straining figure becomes raised like the song theme reference at the end of the Adagietto. It loses its dissonant edge. It becomes much brighter and more hopeful. Now we hear the figure on blazing brass, and it introduces a hymn-like theme, a chorale, a moment of triumph, perhaps.
The splendour of that chorale fades. The triumph is premature, and the second movement ends in more deathly desolation, a clear echo of the first movement's funeral march there. Yet at the same time, there's a glimpse of something that would have been familiar to many in Mahler's audience. An old German carol, famously harmonised by Bach in several different ways. Wie schön leuchtet der Morgenstern. How brightly shines the morning star. The morning star in the carol is clearly a reference to the star that shines on the morning of Christ's birth. But it's also, in Catholic tradition, strongly identified with the Virgin Mary. This could also provide, perversely you might say, a link to Alma, Mahler's intended. As Freud famously diagnosed, Mahler did seem to suffer from a kind of Holy Mary complex. The association of Alma with Mary in the choral finale of his Eighth Symphony really does seem to chime in with that. That would certainly help explain why the chorale returns in triumph, real triumph this time, at the end of the Fifth Symphony, Mahler's hymn of thanks for Alma's transforming love and removal from his life, at least temporarily, of the fear of death. And it would also explain Mahler's frustration when it seems Alma herself failed to get the reference. That hope-filled rising version of the striving motive at the climax of the second movement even provides a connection to the wild, even manic waltz that forms the centrepiece of the Fifth Symphony. This central movement is often said to be weirdly disconnected, split from the first two movements and their preoccupation with death. Yet listen closely to the opening starburst fanfare on horns. Opening motive. You could say it's based on the same template as the striving, hopeful motive in the second movement. So there are connections everywhere in Mahler's Fifth Symphony. Motivic, tonal, I haven't even begun to look at that, references to songs, all of them bridging wild mood swings, conveying a sense of musical coherence, even if it's stretched, as in the leap from the desolate end of the second movement to the manically up beginning of the third. There are even hints here of a story, possibly quite a coherent one, which might even explain the broad outlines of Mahler's Fifth Symphony. Yet when we're listening to this music, it is possible also just to delight in being carried along by the current of Mahler's emotions, the soaring of his imagination, his glorious tunes and his dazzling orchestral colours. And if that's the case, how much need is there ultimately to interpret this music? About the time that Mahler wrote his Fifth Symphony, somebody mentioned programmes to him. In response, he raised his glass of wine and cried out, Perish all programmes! Might he have included even the tentative one I've just sketched out? It's possible. Do these references, these allusions, these tone-poem-like musical transformations constitute a hint as to Mahler's real meaning in the Fifth Symphony? Or is he partly playing with us? Perhaps ultimately Mahler realised that on one level, as Mendelssohn put it, music is a language too precise for words, while on another 
but ambiguity, the openness to different interpretations, or to none at all, is also one of music's great strengths. It's all part of the fascination of Mahler. He seems to want to tell us so much, yet try to pin down what it is exactly he's telling us, and you can't help feeling that you're also missing something, something vital. And what that something vital is, well, that's up to you.